Good morning, Britain and friends overseas. We hope you're warming your hands around a hot podcasting device. It's start your week from the bunker to set up the next seven days ahead with me, Andrew Harrison. And it is looking like hell week with the convergence of strikes and freezing weather. Shivering away somewhere in South London, it's Alex Andreo. Good morning, Alex. How are you? <laughs> it, it, it's looking like hell week, although it looks lovely. <laughs> It looks lovely. It's yes. It's beginning to look a lot like hell. We have to get out of the way first. You've got to deal with the national mourning or lack thereof in England after the national football side went out of the World Cup two one against France on Saturday night. As a Spurs fan, Alex, what do you have to say to a grieving nation about Harry Kane missing the second penalty? Will you apologise to the grieving nation, Alex? No, no. If they if they want to blame Harry Kane, let them. I think he's a legend yes. uh, who has done. As much as anyone to put the England team where it is today. So he ballooned a penalty. So what? It happens. Grow up. Of course. It goes with the responsibility of taking the penalties in the first place. Sometimes okay. you miss them. I mean, it's disappointing, obviously. But the commentator at the time, I remember, I remember him saying on ITV something along the lines, and so once more the England run ends much earlier than expected. And I just thought the only thing wrong there is the expectation. I don't know why anyone can have a legitimate certainty of their team getting further than, you know, among the top eight or four in yeah. the world. You know, we went out probably to the competition joint favourites with Brazil. In tremendous form, we are in erratic form, and and we still gave them a really good even match that could have gone either way. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what else the national team can do. It was a good game; it could have gone either way. It went their way. That's yeah. just football. I mean, fucking hell. Yes, it, it's been remarkable how well everybody's taken it. I think it's because it's too cold for Dragon Hooligans to go and smash up Delice de France. If it was been in midsummer, everything would be on fire. But it's just too cold to go out, isn't it? Uh, we've got <laughs> at least we've got we've got France versus Morocco to look forward to this week, which could be pretty spicy. I'm afraid my boycott has cracked. I did watch the England game, but on to more serious things. We are experiencing the first real cold snap of the winter. Weather warnings across the UK, flight cancellations at Stansted, Heathrow and Gatwick. UK power prices have reached a record high because of uh, increased demand and also a lack of wind. Obviously, we're all horrified by the terrible incident in which four children fell into a frozen lake in Solihull. We're hoping for the best there. But the icy weather is arriving, as I say, as multiple strikes are set to land. Members of the RMT working for Network Rail and 14 train companies are going to be on strike from Tuesday. National Rail says there'll be a very limited service on strike days and no trains at all on some routes. Alex, does this count as a, as a crunch week of sorts with the weather and the strikes converging? I think the next couple of weeks actually will be very tricky for the government and for the nation in general because they sort of bring to a head things that running hairs that have been going on really for, well, some of them for over a decade, you know, the underpaying of public servants has been going on for a very, very long time and is is coming to a head now. I think, I mean, it's slightly weird to see the same libertarians who lost their mind over having to wear a face mask on public transport sort of now cheer a change in the law that might force workers to work when they don't want to work. And, you know, the domestic deployment of the army that those seem to me far bigger dangers to liberty than anything that happened during COVID. But 
I mean, the government is playing a, a difficult game and a dangerous game, I think, because they've obviously decided. We sort of knew that from when they torpedoed the negotiations with rail workers, which seemed to be heading to a resolution towards the end of the week before. And at the very last minute, the government apparently stepped in and inserted a demand for driver-only trains, which they knew the unions would not accept. Then what we saw towards the end of last week was them torpedoing the negotiations with nurses by saying they wouldn't Mm. even sit down with them. Nurses said, we will hold off on the strikes if you just talk to us. They didn't say you have to accept our demands. They didn't say you have to talk to us about pay. They just said, if the government just sits down and talk to us, we will postpone the strikes. And the government responded, no. I think that's a really tricky game. They have gone straight back to the union barons playbook that if you're ancient like me, you can remember from the 70s. Uh, Sunak's been talking about introducing yet more union restriction. There's a transport strikes Mm. minimum services level that's been introduced but not timetabled yet. No effort is going at all into solving these strikes from the government point of view, but a massive amount of effort is going into politicising them. Yeah, and the problem for the government is, I suspect, a mathematical one, and it's not one they've thought through because... This is the policy that worked quite well with miners. But miners were highly concentrated communities geographically and could be isolated. I'm not sure that can work now. The ordinary families that Sunak prays in aid include nurses, they include teachers, you know, they include postal workers and rail workers and barristers and doctors and civil servants and porters and and, and cleaners and nurses and border stuff and bus drivers and ambulance drivers and firefighters and refugees. It's too wide to contain. Every single family will have someone among them or, you know, a very good friend at the very least who is in one of those professions. They will know what's going on. They will be in support of someone striking, maybe not of everyone striking, but they will have a different understanding of why the strikes are happening to what it was like in the 80s when, you know, it was a problem that was affecting the country but was happening over there. And those communities could be painted in a particular way as backward and not down with change. This is very, very different. Yeah, it's very different in that, you know, the moment is, is compared routinely with the last winter of discontent at the end of the 70s. And I can dimly remember there was a lot of antipathy towards the unions. And now there's a lot of support for the unions. All polling confirms mm. that, you know, the nurses in particular, but also, you know, even the, uh, you know, not particularly, you know, populist RMT have a lot of support. More people support their strikes than don't support their strikes. Because of Mick Lynch, who is an absolute media superstar, basically. You know, midwives and junior doctors are voting this week. So they will be added on to the pile of difficulty. Of course, the government have not told us how much the strikes will cost both in terms of economic activity lost and in terms of all the contingency planning they're doing, why not offer that money to, you know, to the people they were applauding on the the doorstep uh, two years ago? Well, Sunak's line over the weekend was that the strikes, the pay awards if made, would cost every family a thousand pounds. 
which is a particularly warped piece of maths that involves assuming mm. that every single public se sector worker will get an above average, above inflation pay rise. Is this washing? I mean, outside of the conservative media universe, I mean, people, you know, it, it seems to be debunked almost immediately. I mean, it, it will wash with some, and we really mustn't underestimate the power of the right-wing press, who truly loathes the unions, because remember, they've had problems with their own unions over time. We really mustn't underestimate the drip-drip effect of headline after headline after headline talking about union barons. I think the great lie, which has not been scrutinized enough, is this line that the government keeps churning out. We've seen Sunak do it several times, Hunt do it several times, and cleverly over the weekend, that the government have followed the pay review body recommendations. It drives me absolutely nuts this isn't challenged properly. Some, only some journalists are pointing out that when that recommendation was made, inflation was at 6%, and it's now over 10%. That's just one thing. Only a handful of journalists are pointing out that the pay review body recommendations are just that. They're recommendations and they don't bind government in any way. Indeed, government has consistently gone lower than the recommended raise for several years, which is how we've ended up where we are. And the Scottish government recognized rampant inflation, went above those recommendations, and that's why you don't have the same level of strikes in Scotland. But I have seen nobody pointing out that government is not some inert part of the pay review process. They give their review body the total envelope within which they can spend. I have a bit here from the review body recommendation on nurses' pay in July, when Sunak was still Chancellor, by the way. And it reads, the UK government has said that they will not fund any increase beyond 3%. Now, of course, the review body can recommend 20%, but it means that money must be taken from existing budgets. So that limit is in practice absolutely determinative. And it is a cynical and disgusting and utterly craven way for the government to set the pay limit and then absent itself from the debate. Say, it's nothing to do with us. The pay review body said 3% when they've already given them the maximum they're willing to fund. Away from the strikes, we do try to bring you things that perhaps don't get the attention they would otherwise get. One particularly egregious development this week, the UK is going to downgrade its commitment to human rights to get closer diplomatic ties with countries that perhaps don't value them quite so much. James Cleverly says that they're going to be looking at new links with countries in Africa, Latin America and Asia that are more likely to be influential countries over the next 30 years, but which believe in sovereignty, territorial integrity, and free trade. There is no mention of human rights here. This has emerged from something the Foreign Office is calling its new geostrategy unit. It'd be interesting to know who's in that. They are labelling it as a, as a pragmatic policy. They keep saying it's a we're taking a new pragmatic approach to this. And who could possibly object to a pragmatic policy, right? And yet, 
I think it shows two things. The, the first thing is that the, the UK would rather be a supplicant to every Tom, Dick and Ben Salman than accept that the Brexit it chose was, was too hard. You know, a mistake, the fixing of which would be the lowest possible hanging fruit to boost the economy by a huge amount. The second thing it shows is that the government has learned nothing from the last 10 years, including the Ukraine experience. What happens when the next government we get in bed with bombs its neighbor or launches a chemical attack on its own people? Doing business with autocratic regimes is a high-risk strategy. We've seen this again and again. It is the opposite of pragmatic, and it indirectly funds our enemies. Almost all the countries on that list are still buying fuel from Russia. Several are selling Russia arms. We should be holding our allies tighter, not casting around for new frenemies. It does strike me as part of this kind of undeclared strategy of just making it harder and harder for Labour to govern if and when they get mm. in. I mean, to just like to pump the ball so far down the pitch that even bringing it back to sort of semi-reasonable, you know, a semi-reasonable approximation of what we used to have is going to be the work of an entire term. I mean, and, and this, this move in particular does look quite gratuitous. Yeah. I mean, they're playing snooker, basically, aren't they? They know the next move will probably be Labour's. So they're just putting the ball in an impossible position um, for Labour to score any points. That's precisely what it is. And it was expressed really quite openly a couple of weeks ago by Greg Hands, who wrote a piece in Conservative Home saying we should join the CPTPP, not because it will have any significant economic benefit, but because it will make it impossible for Labour to get closer to Europe again, which is... You know, all these things contain the extraordinary admission that they've lost the next election already, but also overtly that their strategy is one of scorched earth. That's what mm. they're saying. Speaking of legislation, it's the last week of Parliament before Christmas. Ministers are cramming stuff through before going to the mince pies. There's the levelling up bill, including its mm -hmm. climb downs on wind farms and housing targets coming up. We've also got the financial services bill, loosening regulations on banks just as we enter a recession. What's going on here? I'm getting deja vu all over again here, Alan. The financial services bill got a very good write-up on the basis of what had been trailed. And then the second wave of reaction when people saw the detail was actually really, really negative. There were three editorials in the standard condemning it. So I think we can assume that George Osborne isn't fantastically happy about it. Bloomberg, Reuters, the FT, everywhere you care to look, the general thrust of it was UK defends city deregulation. And it seems to me that all these measures that were put in place following the global financial crisis. And one of the people, by the way, that came out against it is my old boss at the Office of Fair Trading, Sir John Vickers, who headed the review into financial services following the crisis and made those recommendations. And he said that we shouldn't be chipping away at them because it creates a risk. Obviously, it creates a risk. But you see, this directly ties to the story we were just discussing about casting around for dodgy regimes to do business with. 
That's the point. The UK has backed itself into a corner trade-wise. So it is now looking for double or nothing high-risk strategies to somehow boost its economy without doing the really obvious thing, which is to say, we got it wrong. We need a closer relationship with Europe. Also on the agenda this week, there will be a vote on the voter ID bill, which is going to bring Mm. the debate on voter suppression very much into focus. MPs cannot amend the bill at this stage. They can either accept it or reject it. It's largely symbolic. But how do you see that that focus on the debate about su- effect- effectively suppressing the young vote and suppressing the votes of uh, poorer people and ethnic minorities? How do you All think right. that debate's going to go this week? I think it's one of the few things that and legislation strikes that the whole Conservative Party will agree on because... Like I said, they're in a difficult position electorally, so anything that helps them save a few seats will be very, very welcome. What's interesting to note, I think, is that we are beginning to see new Tory backbench groupings manoeuvre. We saw several over the weekend. We saw a grouping called Conservative Way Forward, which is, I think, the brainchild of hard man Steve Baker, who's now gone off to be a minister, so he's no longer involved, but the thing still exists, which is demanding that the government cuts all woke spending before it increases taxes. And by woke spending, they mean anything that's targeted at equality or diversity or human rights. Then there's a sort of crudus team who's really saw still that Johnson was thrown out and that Johnson was then not allowed to run again for the leadership. And he's rightly upset because he's invested a lot of money into Johnson and got a very poor return for his cash. And so they're beginning to maneuver about membership taking control from the MPs because they're upset that Rishi Sunak was just confirmed as leader as opposed to having been elected by the membership. Then there is a sort of next generation Tories group, which launched last week. And they're basically the young crowd. And they're saying the Conservatives need to look more to the under 45s, which is actually a very shrewd, very shrewd assessment. I saw some polling last week that said only one in five under 50s are planning to vote Conservative in the next election. That is not a sustainable demographic, if I can be, mm. if I can be diplomatic and say it that way. And so that's the group who are seeing basically, you know, the triple lock being protected while working age people are being asked to pay more. And they're beginning to question that Conservative Party priority. And I think we will see a few shots fired from those various groups using the pieces of legislation going through Parliament now effectively as proxy wars. Finally, before we go, we should look a little bit at the war in Ukraine. There was a missile strike at the weekend uh, on a hotel, which is a base for the the Wagner Mercenary Group, it, which this this hotel is in Luhansk, this seems to have upped the intensity of the missile war. Even though both sides are sort of hunkering down for winter, there's very fierce fighting in southern Ukraine. 
Russia is targeting Odessa and Ukraine is bombarding parts of Melitopol, which is occupied by the Russians. Can we expect this to become more of a of a of a missile and artillery war over the winter months with fewer troop engagements, do you think? Well, of course, yeah. And and especially with the very, very cold weather, you know, blowing from the north, I think troop movements will become much more difficult. This is the time when they, you know, troops tend to entrench themselves and fight at a distance, as it were. And I think we'll see a lot, a lot more of this. It was interesting to see over the weekend cleverly talk about the idea of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. And I think he was expressing the consensus Western views, because we've seen Biden saying similar things, that it's sort of, it's too early to talk about negotiations, that Russia... If there were negotiations right now, Russia would just use them to rearm and regroup. And they're not they're not yet in a bad enough position to make meaningful concessions. But I think just the feeling in my waters, my instinct is that early next spring we will see diplomatic movement on this front. Okay, well that's start your week. Thank you, Alex, for joining me. It's my pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, We're getting ready for Oh God, What Now? live tonight in London at 21 Soho. Aren't we, Alex? It's going to be nice and warm in there. Yes, it's going to be nice and warm in in there, but baby, it's cold outside. Absolutely. Listeners, if you've got tickets, we'll be happy to see you there. But if you can't make it or you're not in London, if you back Oh God, What Now? on Patreon, you can watch the whole thing for free on Zoom. And here's Alex with thanks to some more of our Patreon backers. Huge gratitude from me to Oliver Weston, Victoria Cousins, Norman Towler, Helena Thomas and Ed Parr. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow for another Bunker. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreev. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.